HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, uh, coming to you today from the Champlain Valley, and, well, let's see now. Ryan, where are you coming to us from? Well, right now I'm at my family's house in Ohio, kind of mobile these days, but um, the last two years I've lived in Asheville, North Carolina, on a farm so called Ryan? Hickory Nut Gap Farm. Yeah. So Ryan was at Hickory Nut Gap Farm, which is one of these amazing farms that you hear a lot about. Do you want to tell folks uh, um, what makes it so special? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, they they focus in grass-fed beef production, 100% grass-fed beef. Um, they've built a really um, impressive business in the last uh, 10 to 12 years. They're operating all in family land, and they actually um, they're the primary grass-fed beef supplier for Earth Fair grocery stores as well as supplying a good number of restaurants around the Asheville area, western North Carolina area, and uh, um, have a good presence at the farmer's markets as well. But we also raise pork on pasture and poultry on pasture, both chickens and turkeys. Um, we also have about 10 acres of certified organic apple orchards, um, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, asparagus, and mushrooms, all certified organic as well. So you are, in, you are working on the small fruit front, and you're yeah, also was... working on the certified organic front. Do you want to talk about what that entails? Yeah, sure. Well, I also, um, for the last three years, have been pursuing working as an organic farm inspector, um, and beginning about a month ago, I've, I'm pursuing that as my full-time job now. I'm working for myself, and so I have a, you know, a lot of experience working in organic certifications and with the certification process. Um, and but then working at Hickory Nut Gap, I was also able to, you know, do it on the ground level as well, um, as the sort of assistant manager of the apple orchards, um, as well. Oh, 
Was there anything specific um, well, that you wanted me to? Now I have so many questions. Um, okay. Let's talk about let's talk about number one. Um, well, I guess the first question I had was, tell us about the life of being an inspector. I I suspect it's similar to the life of being an organizer, which is on the road a lot. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a pretty mobile thing. Um, there aren't very many people, actually, at least in the southeast region, that are organic farm inspectors, and so I cover a pretty large area. Um, I'm actually independently contracted. I don't work for anyone specifically. Um, I'm, I'm contracted out by different certification agencies. I work for a few at this time, and I, every farm that's certified organic needs to be visited once a year by an inspector, um, and you go through a full farm tour. Uh, there's a, that's a big audit, um, and record-keeping and documentation is a really significant part of being a certified organic operation. And so that's as much of a focus, uh, you know, for the inspection as it is doing a farm tour and getting to know the farming side of the operation. So there's definitely, um, you know, a decent amount of paperwork and, um, you know, understanding the, um, it's called the National Organic Program, um, is the law and where the rules are all written out and things like that as it relates to obtaining certification. So you've been doing this for three years and you've kind of intensified your hours uh, lately. Yeah, although the winter you... time is more of a slow month, um, it's actually, like I said, it's allowed me to come up and visit my family here and things like that. But in the in the summertime, um, and especially working full-time on a farm and doing the farm inspections, I was definitely looking at like 60 and sometimes 70-hour weeks in order to fit everything in, you know, to get all the work done that I wanted to. Um, you know, but a typical a typical work as a farm inspector is pretty comparable to any other you know, full-time job where there's about 40 or so hours a week that I can reasonably sit in and I can cram in more than that, but then it just becomes a little bit more unenjoyable. <laughs> and um, have you noticed, I'm just wondering, uh, we've been hearing a lot about Ag Squared and um, other database management software programs whose purpose is to help farmers manage for their certification and, and kind of crop planning and culture documentation. Have you noticed yeah. an increase have you noticed people using that? I actually have only recently become familiar with those programs and I have never come across any producers who are using them. Um, although a lot of the individual certification agencies provide sort of blank documents probably similar to what those different programs offer. It's uh, it's more for I think um, those, those types of programs are a little more attractive to the younger farmer, I think, than maybe the less technologically savvy older farmer. And a lot of the people that I actually, in the Southeast in particular, that I've inspected are in that, like, 50 to 60-year-old age range. And some of them are 100% organic. Some of them are, um, trend, you know, transitioning their operations or part conventional, part organic. Um, but they are way more into the handwritten record-keeping systems and things like that, which can get messy at times. But um, the programs do have a lot to offer, though, as well, um, in terms of, you know, they're a complete system. They have the, you have the ability to just use that and not really be whacking at all in the kinds of records that you need to keep as an organic operation and things like that. Well, and it would seem also just, the computing power to be able to examine different aspects from year to year and over a 10-year period Absolutely. You know, would be yeah. really useful. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, in 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 a similar way that like QuickBooks QuickBooks can be for the business side of your operation, there's definitely that you know the ability to play with data and you know and use different data sets to input you know like you're saying for you know, just to sort of analyze your yields or um, you know your your dollars and cents and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, it definitely it it makes sense to me. But like I said, a lot of people just aren't. Um, you know, it, it they don't work so well with the <laughs> techno. You know, farmers. Not not every farmer is lacking technological savvy, but I think on the whole, it's you know it's sort of a second thought. It's not the primary thing that they're focused on. Well, you know, and in counterpoint to that, I mean, I agree that sometimes yeah. folks are not savvy. But one thing I've also just felt in my own life also is it's, a, it's also a matter of screen time. You know, it's not just so much that you can't Definitely. figure out how the program works. It may also Absolutely. just be that you're not interested to come inside and stare at a screen for two hours. Yeah, and that's actually okay. something that I'm looking into a little bit um, in expanding my inspecting business in the next year is doing some transition consulting with people that could really help them to learn a program like that and then just turn it over to them, you know, sort of learn the program myself well enough to be able to teach it to other people in a quick format and then really let the program, you know, be their guide as opposed to having an in-person consultant there all the time or, you know, that they have to call all the time and things like that in order to achieve that transition from other kinds of agricultural production to certified organic. So, there's, you know, there's... Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, another yeah. thing I've just been... We've been talking a lot about open data and, and you know, in, in conversations around farm hacks, there's a lot of conversation about what are the open data sets that are relevant to, to agriculture and how do we become better, you know, interpreters and facilitators of and manipulators of these open data sets for the benefit of our personal farming uh, operations and then also for articulating kind of our policy goals around increasing how much sustainable ag happens. And so yeah. one of those open data sets we've been talking about is inspired by the Cornell soil biology test you know that test? I'm not, no, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, so uh, I'm actually, I'm a not, little I'm bit not of a tangent. With <laughs> but I want to tell you because they have a, it's called the Cornell Soil Health Test, and they have a Cornell Soil Health uh, training manual that teaches you, uh, you know, the lab methodology, but also a lot of the field evaluation tools and, and uh, metrics. But basically sure. it, it tests the chemical, the physical, and the biological health of the soil. Right. And well, seems, you can yeah, essentially like you could use that tool. test to set a baseline in your in you know on your on as you're going through your fields and you're documenting uh, your practices. You could in, in a transition type scenario make you know make a field by field test of your soil health and see how it improves with organic practices. For and that, and that's definitely something too. You know, it seems, it seems like that's implementing a lot of that. You know, that's a way to gauge, you know, the ecological side of the triple bottom line model. It's pretty interesting. You know, as as somebody transitions to a more ecological, you know, realm of production, being able to say that my soil is more healthy now than it was five or ten years ago is, you know, it's, it seems like it, that tool would be pretty useful. Definitely. Well, yeah, uh, see, and, see, and the, the economic potential of that land. Yeah, that's, that's where I see, you know, that, that, it'd, be, it'd be great to fit that into 
um, like you said, making a case for policy goals and things like that. We have people out there almost running experiments and things like that on operations that are transitioning from um, you know, conventional or whatever you want to call it to organic or certified ecological type practices um, to, as, as a gauge to really show the value of what they're doing. Yeah, same with rotational grazing, too. Yeah, definitely. And that's another, yeah, um, similarly for grassland management as opposed to... Um, so, one, a, so one other thing I want to make sure to ask you about and, and give you a chance to talk about is a growing culture. I've just been on there, and I hadn't been on there for like half a year, and it's like, it's totally tremendous. Absolutely. I mean, I have a pretty minimal role. Um, I'm good friends with the... Two primary um, folks, Lauren Cardelli and Asher Wright are their names. Um, we all went to Warren Wilson College together. And um, it, it's a really good opportunity. I mean, I really believe in what they're doing um, as, you know, an information-sharing network, essentially, is what they're trying to achieve. Um, and Lauren has a particular interest in getting a lot of um, information to share from third world and um, under lesser-developed areas in um, different countries across the world to, you know, to be able to document t- techniques that are really applicable in any region um, or at least in similar ecosystems across the globe, not just in West Africa or in, you know, southern Alabama or Mexico, you know, anything like that. Those, those farmers don't really necessarily have a way to communicate um, their ideas with each other um, other than through universities and extension services and things like that, which often um, are not necessarily you know, gaining all of the information, you know, from their constituents to pass on to other people. So I think that um, what, what they're doing is great, but it also provides a really cool opportunity for young farmers here and our friends and in and around the states and, you know, and, and abroad too as a way to um, document. Um, but it also helps us to practice writing skills um, and things like that, you know, and really put ourselves out there as people that are um, involved in this movement that we're all, you know, here to support. And I think, you know, like I said, I think growing culture really helps to um, fill that void. And they're really, you know, they're, they're taking some great strides in the last couple of years. So I'm glad to be able here, you know, to be here helping them out. And I'm actually just joined um, a writing team that's just forming. And we're going to start publishing an, an article once a week. Um, and each writer is going to be responsible for an article every six weeks, I believe, to really up the library content of the site. Um, and they're also just beginning... Um, to formulate the outreach and the educational um, sides of the business as well, which will also serve pretty valuable purposes once they're more fully instituted as well. Well, I mean, that's a good point about the scholarship. You know, I feel it's a very important moment that we have so many ambitious people in the country orienting their, their thoughts and ambitions around agriculture and our scholarship is really relevant and useful and, and that it's driven by curiosity and, and stewardship goals. Um, can anybody post to a growing culture or how does that yeah, kind of um, at this, of at sharing this time, At this time, I mean, there's definitely a screening process. It's not like a blog where anybody can just post at will. It would have to go through one of a few different administrators before it makes its way onto the site. But anyone is more than welcome to, like I said, to write articles or, um, I mean, and there are articles about agricultural practices, but there's also things about genetically modified crops um, and opinion pieces and, um, and, and, like I said, more scientific documentation of things on thermophilic bacteria 
and that kind of stuff as well. Um, but also, any farmer in the world is welcome to submit a farm profile, which is actually pretty cool because they're be- beginning to build a pretty good set of almost a, a separate library of just farm profiles where they really ask people, young farmers, old farmers, you know, um, people across the world to just document what makes their operation unique and special to them and to the market that they serve, um, you know, and anything like that, that they'd be able to share and export. And it's, you know, and at first I've definitely encountered a few people that are like, well, I don't really want to share all my business secrets and things like that, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not really anything like that. It's more just, uh, you know, a good snapshot of what you're doing and a, and a good, you know, healthy light um, with lots of photographs and just a brief description of what you're doing. So it's, and it's just really encouraging to see all these different people across the world doing, you know, you know, and, and it's so it, it's so inspiring because of the human ingenuity and creativity that's associated with a lot of, you know, what makes these places unique. Um, it's, so it's a good, it's a good way to share and keep people um, inspired. Well, well, and 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 so much of you know we're in this interesting situation of having this climate, you know, climate crisis and economic crisis, and and now you know we've had a drought situation in the, in right. Midwest where you know really the paradigm of being confined to a limited number of options and get, you know having having your business set in a very specialized production methodology. Uh, can be a, a doom problem, you know. Can yeah. can can find your options, and to the extent that we're able to see the diversity of possibilities out there and and innovate, and you know, be like, wow, why don't we plant sorghum? Or, you know, what about bringing animals into this rotation? What about direct feeding? Um, you know, grains into the pasture and revolving through a pasture rotation. Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think I think farmers across the board, large and small, are really seeing, you know, the last ten to fifteen years that diversification in their operation is essential to the health of their business. Really, you know what you're talking about, whether it's conventional, organic, or different different kinds of crops, or you know, even just you know, growing four or five different kinds of seed of the same crop in order to, you know, help, you know any concerns, you know, at least a few concerns related to drought or, um, you know, insect pest problems, things like that. Um, but, yeah, but I also, um, you know, I, I guess, yeah, the, the sharing of information on growing culture, like I said, you know, as it relates back to what we were speaking about a second ago, it, it really, you know, that's, it, it's almost, um, it's a health and numbers thing, too, where, um, you know, people in general are less reluctant to separate from the herd and especially in their business without, you know, but, but seeing that other people, you know, have these methodologies that are tried and true and that they could, you know, begin to try and implement on their own operations, you know, it, that's, a, that, you know, yet another valuable, you know, way of helping push this whole thing forward um, in terms of the, you know, food, food movement that we're a part of. So as you're looking forward, so... It's really wonderful, all this communication, uh, farmer-to-farmer communication, scholar-to-farmer communication, nation-to-nation. You're yourself a wonderful communicator. And um, I wanted to talk about what are, when we're talking about how we as young farmers are articulating our vision um, and speaking as kind of the producer class, uh, how do you think we should be strategically communicating to consumers and policymakers, and 
the majority that it would take to, to move and make changes in our agricultural economy. How do we, the minority, do you feel, and this relates to your work with, you know, beginning farmers and ranchers, need to be Right, now that's actually, yeah, that was one of the things I was going to mention is that I've, personally, I've um, done a lot of stuff with the Farm Bureau. Uh, not a lot, um, but the last two or three years I've been involved with their Young Farmer and Rancher Program in the state of North Carolina. Um, and we do some gleaning days and things like that, um, you know, some cool community-oriented projects. But really, I believe that the Farm Bureau, I mean, regardless of your agricultural politics, um, the Farm Bureau is absolutely the largest organization that represents farmers in Congress, both state and nationwide. And so I've tried to plug myself in a little bit with the Farm Bureau, and not that I believe I'm going to be able to affect any massive change in necessarily the Farm Bureau's policies or anything like that on the, on the nationwide scale, but to understand and to just sort of integrate, um, because really when it comes down to it, I, I believe it's less than 2% of the country, it's definitely less than 3% of our country are farmers these days. And so when you start splitting hairs about the types of production and things like that, while I, I totally believe in um, needing to revamp you know, into our agricultural policy and sort of national agricultural political goals, I also believe that, you know, kind of, you know, all staying in one camp and, and working together is, is definitely one strategy that can help us, you know, be successful um, in just moving forward. And, I mean, one of the things that I think is missing the most is that we, there's sort of a disconnect in the true value of food to our country as it relates to, I mean, even things, you know, like security and, um, you know, and just the health of families and, and our nation as a whole. So um, once we, you know, so, so really when you start having, you know, framing the conversation that way, um, being able to sort of pull in larger agricultural groups that, you know, once, once you get down to it, y'all may not agree on every single little piece of thing, you know, of legislation, but it still is something that's, you know, going to help farmers out on the whole. And then on the side, I mean, organizations like what, what you're doing, Severin, and, and, you know, and what Lauren's doing with Growing Culture, and there's um, lots of others, you know, and, and you also do work with the National Young Farmers Coalition. I think, you know, bringing up young people um, through, you know, education, you know, both, um, you know, college and high school and things like that, but also, you know, sources of information like, what we're talking about, you know, is, is an additionally good way to, as, you know, as the tide changes and, you know, the generational shift that happens over the next 20 to 30 years, I believe that's really when we're going to start seeing these major policy changes and implementation. It's, 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 gonna, it's a generational thing um, that we're going to have to overcome as much as anything. But, um, yeah, between the Young Farmer Ranchers Program and really being able to, you know, tap into that more administrative side of um, farm policy making and lob lobbying and things like that, but also, you know, from the ground up, too, is a really good, you know, and equally as proven strategy. So I think combining those two um, types of methodologies is really going to be something that we'll see success in in our generation down the road. Totally. Well, and I, I, um, I just come from a meeting of the New England Farmers Union, which is a regional kind of sub-chapter of the National Farmers Union, which is after the Farm Bureau, the second largest yeah. uh, farmers organization, I think there are 150,000 members. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, it was really cool being there and, and meeting with the other young people who were gravitating towards um, the National Farmers Union, which is very strongly based in 
the populist movement and cooperatives and having cooperative insurance companies and cooperative marketing associations, et cetera, et cetera, and holding cooperatives accountable to their member structure and staying democratic, um, as we've seen some of the big dairy co-ops have, have not uh, maintained total integrity to their to their members. But um, so that, and it was really wonderful meeting all these young people who saw NFU and Farm Bureau and uh, their work with schools all as kind of part of their leadership palette, you know, that they're, they're, they're getting skills in communication, they're getting skills in leadership, they're meeting the Secretary of Agriculture for their state, they're, you know, flying into Washington, they're learning about the Farm Bill and are essentially building their own credentials and uh, repertoire of contacts to become pretty, you know, able political agents. Um, yeah, and, and in a way, that it's so great. Oh yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with you. That's something that I've you know every chance, like like I mentioned with the um, writing of articles for Growing Culture. You know, I'm, I'm by no means a a journalist, um, but I, but I think it's an outstanding opportunity for myself and anybody else interested to take advantage of any anything like that. Whether it's talking to you on the radio or um, there's actually some competitions um, that the Young Farmer and Rancher Program does on a yearly basis through the Farm Bureau um, that are really unique. One of them is called a discussion meet, and it's similar to a debate, although it's more meant to um, be a, a discussion, like I said, as opposed to a conflict of ideas. Um, and it's, it's a state competition every year, and I believe that every state Farm Bureau has a Young Farmer and Rancher um, discussion meet, and then you basically talk about um, agricultural pol- This year, one of the main questions was labor because there's, you know, huge, it's a huge discussion right now um, in terms of immigration policy as it relates to available agricultural labor um, across the country, not even necessarily in one region. Um, but then, so we, we basically spend 30 minutes discussing that, and it's on a stage in front of other people, um, but you also are just practicing these communication skills amongst people, um, your peers in agriculture, and, and it's a really outstanding opportunity to be able to, like I said, just have that practice and feel comfortable um, just putting yourself and your ideas out there because really that's, you know, that's what's going to affect any kind of change, whether it's production styles or policy or anything like that is, when we have the, you know, I mean, it's, it's a passion, but it's also backed by knowledge and, you know, the ability to communicate and things like that, too. So, um, yeah, and, and that's something that, you know, the Farm, you know, the, the farm Bureau also has, does a good job of, you know, sort of setting the stage for that to happen um, for young farmers and ranchers, which I, which I think is, you know, it's, it's a pretty forward-thinking um, step for that organization to kind of be trying to, you know, look for future agricultural leaders, you know, amongst young people, you know, at the age of 25, 30. Well, yeah, I, I tend to like young farmers myself also. You know, I, I'm frequently a, a critic of the Farm Bureau, and the money and the prizes that they offer are pretty amazing, right. <laughs> and, and they're significant budgets, but unfortunately a lot of those budgets uh, are, are really dominated by kind of corporate agribusiness companies um, whose agenda gets pushed. Uh, So that's one critique I have, but 
No, um, but, I, you know, I, I'm, actually, allowed, to have, I'm allowed to have that critique. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, we all have, yeah, I, I sometimes feel some uh, slightly like an undercover spy because, like you said, my, uh, my politics may not line up with everyone in the room, but, but when it really does come down to it, you know, I, I see more good than, than harm done, you know, or, you know, than, than negative anyway, so... Well, and, you know, again, I feel like this this issue around, you know, we're talking about communication, this issue around seeing eye-to-eye with conventional farms um, is pretty important and relevant in the lives and farm businesses of young farmers across the country because less than 6% of the land base of the United States is farmed organically. Uh, That means chances are you've got somebody uh, joining your farm who's, uh, farming conventionally, so uh, being able and and being able to join together on certain values and communicate, you know, in broad strokes around the community health decisions that need to be made cooperatively, et cetera. You know, a lot of that, a lot of that kind of micropolitics um, is wonderful and was explored. I think in a genius policy way by the Soil Conservation District. Are you familiar with those? No, I'm not. So, you know, just um, a little history moment. Um, during the New Deal, there was a major reorganization of American ag programs, partially in response to the crisis of the Dust Bowl and the um, very charismatic efforts of Hugh um, Bennett. Um, but... Um, there was, you know, essentially a little posse of very high-powered dudes who were way into soil conservation and who were also, many of them, farmers and understood very clearly that if they were going to achieve their goal um, of soil conservation, that it would not be enacted um, by the federal government. It would be enacted by farmers themselves and farmers who were coordinating themselves through uh, local committees and watershed that were essentially watershed-shaped so, committees. Huh. Interesting. So we're more of the bioregional model as opposed to the federal-state federal model? Yeah, exactly. And not only bioregional model and, and kind of geographic um, feature-driven, but also uh, that, the, that the cooperative, that the soil conservation district um, government agent would be informed and his actions, well, at that time his, but um, that their actions would be driven by the recommendations of the farmers. So we're not only defined by nature in terms of the shape of the, of the district, but also that the policy coordinator was not a direct, in a directorial position, but was in an advisory and support role. You know, so it's pretty cool it's a pretty cool thing, and those who are in, uh, those of you who are farming in places, um, consider looping in and figuring out who's on your soil conservation district. Um, in all likelihood, it's a good old boy with a lot of equipment, um, and probably they'd be happy to see you serve. Um, and you may you may use your new communication skills uh, to make friendly friendly relations. Interesting. Did I lose you? <laughs> no, you're there. Sorry. I, I, I um, okay, well, I uh, we don't really have any more time. I'm sorry I started rambling. 
But I oh, wanted to give you a chance to just plug. Um, you're in Ohio right now, and you're pretty familiar with North Carolina. Do you want to just interpret the winter conference scene for those who are in your region and trying to figure out what to where to meet other people this weekend, this weekend, this winter season? Yeah, well, uh, the one that I'm most familiar with is Organic Grower School, um, and it's in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and I've gone to that the last few years, and it's a really good conference. Um, it's broken down into about seven or eight and maybe even nine or ten now sub-tracks that people can focus on, but you can also bounce around and take courses in everything from micro-remediation to how to start a, a fire with a bow drill. Um, it, so it's a really good combination, or interesting combination anyway, of um, you know hard agricultural um, you know, practices that people can take home to build a chicken tractor. And then it's also some of, you know, other things like wilderness living and herbal medicine um, and, and other um, tracks similarly related to um, sort of homesteading and things like that. Um, and, and it's a really, it, it, like I said, it's a really good conference, but it's also really affordable, um, which is something that I know a lot of people appreciate. Um, and there's another one that actually just passed. It's a really good conference called CFSA, is the Carolina Farm Stewardship Association. Um, and they always hold up. They always have a really good conference at the end of the fall. And the third organization that I know is constantly doing trainings and smaller conferences and things like that is um, SES. It's the Center for Environmental Farming Systems, um, and they do um, a lot specifically with meat, but they also have trainings related to organic agriculture and um, organic transition and things like that. So I'd recommend anybody in the Southeast region to check those out. I'm sure there's lots of other good ones too. Those are just ones that I'm most familiar with. Right on. Well, there's also the Ohio one. Well, yeah, and actually, yeah, in, in about a month, OFA is in my hometown, um, Granville, Ohio, at the high school that I went to. And so I'll be attending that in January. I believe it's in January. It could be early February. Um, it kind of, it, it, but it's sometime in the in the colder months of the winter. I mean, OFA is another organization that's been a long time in the world of organic agriculture, and they do a lot of great stuff in the Midwest, too. Well, maybe I'll send you a little bundle of Greenhorn uh, propaganda to get the put on a table over there. Absolutely, yeah, and I'll, pro I'll probably be doing uh, something similar for growing culture, so I'd be happy to add to it. <laughs> Rockin'. Well, thank you so much. I'm Everybody who hasn't figured out how to Google, go Google onto a growing culture. It's a tremendous repository of uh, innovative farm stories and profiles and uh, research projects and agroecology. Uh, really wonderful. And thank you so much, Ryan. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 